Welcome back to Energy Explained, the father-son podcast YouTube channel. Uh, bringing you today a special episode, special topic here uh, with my father, Vikram Rao, who joins us courtesy of the Stanford Engineering Program sometime in the 70s or so as a PhD in engineering and spent a long time as the chief technology officer at Halliburton. So he speaks with authority in all things energy. Great. Well, what we're going to talk about today is the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the worldwide energy market. So I know there's a lot of elements of that. We're not going to be able to cover every single element in, in 20 minutes. So let's focus on the key pieces here. So um, out in Europe, I would say the first question people ask me is, what is this going to do to natural gas prices in the medium term and long term for Europe under a scenario where the governments in Europe make good on their forward-looking statements to say, we will not be buying much or any Russian natural gas. So what plays out in that scenario? How does demand get met? What happens to prices? What are all the things that have to happen for those statements to become reality? Again, under the assumption that there's not some cessation of the invasion and regime change in Russia, which, of course, would put the, the hypothetical into question. So what, what do you think? How do you sort of approach that question? Where do you start? Well, what happens to natural gas prices depends a fair bit on how Russia reacts to the various uh, economic penalties that have been imposed upon them for uh, exports of other goods. So, for example, the U.S. has imposed uh, a penalty of no oil import into the U.S. from Russia, which is actually almost a uh, gesture, because only about 4% of U.S. oil comes from Russia. Yeah. Uh, and that's that much could easily be made up by Canada. So that is more of a gesture. Uh, but I think what it comes down to this, if, if natural gas continues to flow from from Russia, then we will we will have the the high already high prices that exist will continue. Uh, because there is no reason to believe that uh, at least until the winter is over. Uh, uh, Europe currently gets about 40% of its natural gas from uh, uh, other, so like LNG, liquefied natural gas, uh, and, and about a like amount from Russia, and then the rest is domestic production. So I would say the historic high prices of natural gas, which is over 30 US dollars per million BTU, uh, will probably continue until the winter is over. Uh, but then, if natural gas is disrupted from Russia for any reason, uh, either voluntarily or otherwise, uh, then it's going to get pretty severe, and then we can discuss what could be done. I can't see anything that could be done in the short term for natural gas. Uh, it's what could be done is for those things that you use natural gas for that are what we call dual fires, which is uh, uh, using oil as the uh, as the fuel, uh, you could switch to to oil, and oil is much more fungible. So oil, Russian oil not coming down is not as serious as Russian gas not coming down right. because oil can be moved. Right. So. So, I mean, it depends on where you want to go with the discussion, but what it boils down to is this. Uh, uh, at least through the winter, the prices are going to stay as high as they are as now, 
and it could get higher uh, if Russian supplies are cut off for one region or the other. Mm-hmm. No, well, I'm really interested in more next winter and honestly, f- the, 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 the more medium term future. I think we had an episode on natural gas prices prior to this conflict and predicted that there would be very high prices in Europe this winter, which happened. And, and so the conflict is not really the primary cause of that, right? That, that existed prior. And we discussed that maybe it could be alleviated with more natural gas from Russia, which is clearly not part of the solution right now. Um, so let's go to next winter and let's imagine the European countries really want to cut back on Russian gas. Let's, let's, let's take that as a given that we want to do this. What has to happen? Does Europe even have the LNG capacity, the capacity to, to accept um, receiving terminals? Does Europe even have the capacity to do that? Because I've looked at a map and there's a lot on the southern southern Europe, of course, going from, you know, northern Africa to southern Europe. But it doesn't seem like those are really plugged into the those look like more built for local consumption, not really plugged into the network. And there's some on the northern side near Rotterdam and so forth, but really not a ton of capacity. And you had previously said that that's not capacity that can come online particularly quickly. So let's fast forward to next winter. Let's say Boris Johnson really wants to have zero Russian natural gas in the UK, in the Netherlands. Let's say we want zero Russian natural gas. Is that even possible? I mean, let's say possible without massive decreases in energy consumption. Yeah. So let's talk about where the LNG terminals are. Reminding listeners, the way LNG works, liquefied natural gas works, is that the natural gas is liquefied somewhere in the US, in Qatar, in Australia, or somewhere. Uh, And it compresses to about 600 times into a liquid. It's kept stored at minus 162 centigrade and then shifts across the ocean. That's how it works. Got it. So then when it gets to Europe or anywhere else, uh, you do you release the gas. It's called regas. So these are called regas terminals. So what Europe has uh, uh, is regas terminals. Europe has roughly 28 uh, regas terminals. Now, so what is, what is that as a fraction of consumption, let's say, about 40%. A 40% of the winter consumption or of the summer consumption? Because it's about yeah, annual consumption. About annual consumption. So in the annual summer, yes. it could be 60 70%, and in the winter, it would be yes. more like 25 yes. 30%. Okay. Right. Correct. So, so what you have is awkward situation that you've got plenty of idle capacity. Idle meaning not full capacity. It's not totally idle. Although Spain mothballed one, uh, one unit probably because it was not being utilized. Sure. And uh, they're way below capacity utilization in Spain. But here's the problem. The Pyrenees are tall. The pipelines are what they are. And you're not going to, in a hurry, build a natural gas pipeline to increase the, increase the flow. Right. So, so, so that's the problem. You've got them in the wrong places. Turkey is a, is a decent bat. Uh, and they could add because they have also ocean access uh, and you'll be better off in pipeline capacity. But really, be, be, you're behind the eight ball that the uh, the, the gas terminals uh, that have any capacity at all are in the south, and you have to get it up there. So I I think that, and this is and this is even arguing that LNG is available. Right. Uh, Let's assume uh, it's available. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because see, there's competition with the parties. There's competition with Japan and right. China for the same LNG. Right. And in normal days, you simply compete on price. And 
one of the one of the interesting features about LNG pricing is that uh, it's pegged to the price of oil to Brent. Okay, to Brent oil. Yeah. It's not pegged to the price of natural gas in each continent. Uh, so because of that, when you have an artificial increase, I say artificial, when you have increase in the price of oil, uh, the LNG pricing goes up and the LNG producers make have windfall profits. Uh, but forget about who's got the profits. Uh, LNG becomes more expensive when oil price goes up. LNG becomes more expensive when gas uh, supply is low compared to its demand. So LNG is, is in real trouble uh, on on those two fronts. Uh, and I can speak to a couple of things, okay? Uh, what could happen in one year, you asking? Uh, in LNG terms, not a whole lot. Okay. Uh, you won't get new production, new liquefaction happening. But there are, they are happening and they could get accelerated. Okay. Uh, uh, new terminals, your best bet on new terminals is some in relative new concept called FSRU. That stands for floating storage regas uh, units. Uh, these are just massive vessels uh, that sit offshore, uh, uh, will either bring the LNG with them or have LNG brought an LNG vessel and and ported to their containers. In any event, they also do the degas. Okay. So what is the significance of these guys? Uh, the significance of these guys is you can get them up in a hurry. Compared, compared to speaking, uh, you could you could build and and uh, and activate these guys in about half the time, roughly, the time of a short terminal. Okay. And they're about sixty percent of the cost. Uh, so the the capital investment is lower uh, and and it's all quicker. Uh, it's got its disadvantages, and then of course the other advantages is you you can move it around. Okay, uh, you know one month it could be Rotterdam, another month it could be wherever. Okay, so that uh, so you could move it around. Now mind you, the folks accepting it have to have some pipes going from some sort of terminal in, but in principle it's it's movable. So FSRUs, I think, are the best bet for any reasonable term. Uh, and if you have an existing uh, uh, transport vessel, you can convert it into a regas vessel quicker than from scratch. So you can see. So what I don't know how, is, how, how long though? How long are you talking about here? I mean, you ah, said half uh, the length of a receiving terminal, but I, I have no yeah, idea how long that takes. Two to three years. Two to three years. Okay. Yeah. So two, two, but two, if you two already years. had the vessel available that previously was simply transporting LNG, it'll be one and a half years. Okay. okay. But presumably uh, there's not enough of those to go around either. So. Yeah. So that's it. I don't think that there'll be, you know what? It's going to be all of the about uh, that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do some FSRU, some new, some repurposed vessels. Uh, you're going to have to continue to build terminals that you're already starting to build. Uh, uh, you'll somehow get gas from the terminals that are currently underutilized, uh, and you switch to oil. You have to do all of those things uh, if the proverbial, you know, what hits the fan, and you and you get drastic reduction of gas from Russia. 
Got it. So, so you talk about dual fired power plants. So I, I just don't know. Are most natural gas power plants able to run on oil with small modifications? Is that, is that, you know? Yeah, many are, but they have to be both dual fired, but many would have been most, it's relatively easy to design in. And I would say that certainly many, if not most, uh, are dual fired. Okay. So let's, let's, so let me summarize what I think you're saying. In the five-year time, five to ten-year time frame, you could build up a lot of receiving terminals. In, in fact, you could probably do other things we've talked about around small nuclear reactors and so forth. But you could, you could replace your fuel, your natural gas fuel sources through LNG. Yes, there's a worldwide market. Yes, there's all these things going on. But um, you could build more receiving terminals. You could use these floating. Uh, a terminal type structures to, to accelerate and to have a little more dynamic shifting of where you put this gas on the network, which sounds like a problem in the past of building big receiving terminals. But all that being said, in the winter next year, the LNG capacity of Europe is, let's say, 25 to 30% of demand. Uh, you're going to have to replace a lot of Russian gas from Norway, from Kronigan, and Let's just look at it. The, it's, the equation's not going to balance without, without a drop in energy demand, even if you use a lot of oil where you're using natural gas. So there's going to be either pain through pricing, pain through energy uh, restriction, or pain through paying Russia. Uh, there's, there's just no avoiding that next winter. But the summer, wait, natural gas demand is half of what it is. That might be a period of time where we have a little bit of a respite. Now let's talk about oil. OPEC um, still exerts... Uh, a good influence on oil oil prices, right? Not not like they did, but they do. Russia is what uh, ancillary member to OPEC or in like the broader OPEC plus. Yeah, OPEC, OPEC plus. plus. Okay, so um, you've talked in the past about there's a price level um, of oil, and I think you've said around seventy dollars, seventy USD, that sustain prices above this level. A lot of production comes online in North America that also spits off natural gas that could be liquefied. Below that level, a lot of that production is unprofitable and the fields are really just left to sit. Um, with that sort of price point in mind, how do you think OPEC plays this? Because sustained high prices would lead to a big production increase from a non-OPEC member, presumably reducing their market control. Um, on the other hand, sustained high prices might serve some domestic political aims. So how, how do you see this pl playing out? Yeah, I still think that OPEC could be advantaged by uh, price uh, around 70. I, I might raise that a little bit in view of everything that recently happened and they get 75 or so. But it's sort of a good intermediate price where they make a decent profit uh, and yet LNG pricing stays within bounds. See, I told you LNG pricing is pegged to the price of oil. So, um, so if LNG is priced very high, sorry, price oil is priced very high, then LNG is incredibly profitable, uh, and more may come on string. Uh, I, I think OPEC has to play the balancing act of not too low, not too high. See, the other thing is that with if it's high enough, then Canadian oil is more uh, economical. Uh, Canadian oil really struggles at anything under seventy dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for a, it's very it's very costly to produce. So then it becomes that is it in OPEC's interest to pop up Canadian oil or not? I I have to think about that because on the one hand 
they want others to also produce but and so forth but canadian oil needs a lot of refining it comes it's not really much of a world commodity uh, because it needs much more refining than arabian rice and so forth uh, which and mostly comes down to the us uh, so i would say yeah 75ish is what opec will try and balance out their problem is that russia is, is one of them uh, is is an opec plus player yeah. so i don't know how that plays out i mean in the past opec did what they did and were in reasonable control when shale oil happened they lost a lot of the control because us became the major producer of oil uh, and and not an importer uh, uh, so uh, yeah i think opec will do what it still is a powerful body yeah uh, it will do what it can i think they will still try to go around 75 if they can well when you're talking about control what you know what you know what my intuition would be is that uh, control it, it, difficulty of control is asymmetric it's easier to expand your own supply to put downward pressure on prices than it is to restrict the coalition supply to put upward pressure on prices. So if Russia doesn't want to play along, they could say, well, you do you. We're just going to expand supply um, to keep prices in a range where we think we then control the market to our uh, you know, long-run interest. Now, I always think you've talked to me about Saudi Arabia's budget. And I mean, let's just also, let me say, I think it's a horrific country. Let me just put that out there. You know, women are treated terribly and I don't support them at all. So let me just, I want to state that very clearly, but you talked about their budget. They, there's a price for which above that, everyone there is getting super rich in the government. And below that, they're running a deficit. Of course, they have pretty good credit. They're sitting on some good assets, but they're running a deficit, right? I think you've told me in the past that number's in the 50s. So is it, it, my intuition is if you just keep it north of that number, life is good for them. But is that your intuition as well? Like why would they want to even play around with losing market control in the long run if they're still sitting pretty at 70, 75? Is that how you see it or is it just, is that my oversimplifying it? Well, you know, the, the, their cost of produce is very low, but their social costs are high. Uh, the way they stay in power is citizens get paid off, so to speak. Right. Okay. Yeah. I call them social costs. Yeah. And social costs have probably come down some, but I think the, the smart money says that 75 is a good number for them to have right. their social costs and everything else that they want. Okay. okay. Uh, but it's hard to sort of that. See, U.S. is the wild card. See, U.S. shale oil can come on stream in months, literally months. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what happened is that years ago, two years ago, I would have told you, it's happening, they're going, you know, gangbusters, they're opening the tickets. Yeah. But in the intervening two years, a lot of the small companies went bankrupt, and the properties went to the big boys. Yeah. And the big boys play a more strategic game. They don't play a reactive game to spot price. Yeah. Uh, so that means the U.S. oil production response to this uh, high price has been much more muted than it would have been two or three years ago. Okay. So now, could it ramp up? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing has changed about the nature of the reservoir and how it's produced uh, because of the pandemic. So uh, what, that's why I say let's solve solving. Addressing this problem with oil is a heck of a lot easier. Both OPEC countries could open their spigots, and U.S. could open up. Keeping in mind also, reminding listeners, that U.S. oil is like Brent. It's very light, sweet oil. Uh, 
So it's a, it's what the market wants. Mm-hmm. Well, in general, there is some there's some gray in that space, sure. depending on what the refineries want. But anyway, so nobody wins if Russian oil is cut off. Nobody. And nobody wins if Russian gas is cut off. So I don't know how far this would go to the point where everybody loses. Because I think we've just discussed there are no short-term solutions to replace Russian gas. Right, right. No. Uh, there are no medium-term solutions, depending on what you call medium-term, except for switching. Uh, and switching is not all that easy. You can't switch certain others. There's another cute one which I'm going to throw out just because it's the flavor of the day in some respects, which is hydrogen. You could ramp up hydrogen production, and we won't get into in what form and effect on climate change, and feed it in natural gas pipelines. You could easily put up to 20% hydrogen in natural gas pipelines without really impacting the use of that gas downstream. There's some adjustment, that's it. So one one thing would be, what if you replace much of the natural gas with hydrogen? And that sourcing is completely different. You have nothing to do with Russia. But everything has something to do with Russia because we source stuff from them. But other than that, so, I mean, it's almost like a fairy tale going on here, okay? Nobody would have predicted that an entire country with amazing resources and supplied the rest of the world will suddenly get shut down. Uh, I, uh, it, it, it simply cannot happen. It's not good for anyone. Uh, but see, this has been the consequence of the way industry runs today, which is we buy from wherever it is the most cost-effective. Yeah. This is why so many solar panels come from China. Yeah. But this is why much of the in, the the uh, uh, the nuclear fuel comes from Russia. I mean, I, it, it, the, the uranium itself is Kazakhstan, but it's uh, uh, it's being and it's being enriched in Russia. So, uh, so the nuclear industry will be impacted if we totally shut down exports from Russia. I, this is almost untenable. Uh, uh, so energy as a whole is not just oil and gas. I'm telling you, nuclear is going to face the issue of where are they going to get the energy uranium? Because they're so. I think you've explained this to me in a separate setting. Kazakhstan is the biggest producer of uranium. Forty percent. Forty percent of the world's uranium is produced in Kazakhstan. Uranium has turned into nuclear fuel. Needs to be enriched to get more closer to plutonium. Yeah, it has only about 07 percent of the good stuff. Got it. And that enrichment right now happens in Russia. Yes. <laughs> so Europe's I mean, power plants, nuclear power plants, have a dependency on Russia, too. Well, you, the world. Yeah. Well, it has a dependency on the world market, of which a good amount right now flows through Russia. So, so I hear what you're saying, which is we, we are having a globalized economy by construction. In fact, the whole idea of one of the ideas of globalization was that the economic dependence would prevent conflict. Um, taken over a long period of time, that has proven largely true, right? The amount of conflict in the last 50 years has been far far less than the 50 years prior, but at present, maybe looking less true, not robust to the whims of a dictator, which we're seeing. And I think it's actually not unrealistic that you would see a, a closed-off Russian economy. I don't think the world will, will sit there and say, you can just 
occupy Ukraine for 10 years and be part of the world economy. I, I doubt that. I think there'll be a weaning period because both sides will benefit from a slower transition. Um, but I, I personally don't think so. So what you're saying is if that really happens, one, there will be an ener- increase in energy costs. A very good supply of relatively low-cost energy will be coming offline. Two, we haven't talked about it. We talked about it on WhatsApp. It could help the green energy transition, but not without some complexities like nuclear facing headwinds themselves and the fact that green energy transition just faces headwinds if people are more worried about just straight pricing and so forth. Your investments might go towards natural gas receiving terminals instead of green energy, right? I mean, it's all competing for a similar pot of money. So it it might help because there's a a attitude that we need to reduce our dependence, but it might hurt because we're spending that money on, on energy security, more first energy security. So it's an ambiguous effect there. We might be optimistic, but it's an ambiguous effect. Um, and, And finally, everything, you know, about the problem says, this is something that the scenario planners at Shell, you've talked about scenario planners at these big companies, they probably didn't have a plan for because they just thought, no way this ever happens because the whole system's built for this not to happen. So we're seeing this play out in real time, kind of the plans emerging because the plans didn't even exist. Is, is that also fair to say? Absolutely. In fact, I can't think of any scenario that's planned for this. They would have been laughed at that they made that a scenario. Right. See, had they planned that a scenario, they wouldn't be heavily invested in Shell, which is one of the best scenario planners in the energy business, uh, have heavy investments in Russia. Right. Uh, so, uh, well, had, I think there's some, you know, whether how much it's back. Uh, yeah, I, this is completely out of the can of any prediction that's been happening. So uh, there's no readiness for this. Any solution, if you will, and I put that in quotation marks, uh, uh, is, is a heck of a guess. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a very, very bad situation. One can only imagine that it corrects itself because everybody realizes how dumb this whole thing is. But yes, energy, which is the basis for most of the economy, uh, will be in terrible trouble if this goes on for more than a few months, really, but certainly more than a few years. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly, yeah, we're hoping for the sake of the people in Ukraine primarily that that doesn't happen um, and that we see peace restored. And, and then, of course, that for worldwide prosperity, it, it's it's an effect. Um, it's sobering, uh, the words you're saying, and certainly one that makes it clear that the European policymakers are in a very tough position and are navigating a tight line. Um, so we'll watch with great interest. I thank you for your time today. Uh, fantastic discussion, uh, interesting, um, sobering and compelling from, uh, from my perspective. So I really appreciate your insights. I can't tell you people asked me what you thought about it because of the podcast. So I figured we just had to record one because I was tired of guessing myself. Um, and honestly, you provide a lot of clarity that I didn't have. So th- thanks there. Any, uh, parting, parting words from you? Yeah, just one that. Ordinarily, in the last discussions we've had, I've been very knowledgeable in the spaces. Uh, I don't know who is knowledgeable in this space, quite frankly. Right. Uh, in the space of how does one react to this completely unexpected, unprecedented event. So I would say, yeah, I've given you opinions, but unlike many of the previous opinions, I would say these are much more lay opinions than expert opinions. I just want to let the public know that. I- 
let's let's say their their expert their opinions from an expert in a scenario that you just don't have the data or the confidence you yeah. normally have for your projections but yeah. um, as you said uh, other experts are also um, struggling to get their head around this and I know economists are in terms of uh, energy forecast pricing and so forth are as well um, so I, I think you know your opinions as, as strong as any and and has proven quite robust, I would say, in the past. So again, thank you. We thank our listeners. Uh, we remind you that the whether you're listening on a podcast or watching on YouTube, the conversation for Energy Explained happens on our YouTube video boards. Uh, remind you to like, subscribe, share with your friends. Obviously, you know we're not doing this for any other reason than to connect with each other and share uh, our thoughts, my father's thoughts, especially on the world energy, uh, green energy transition, and of course major energy uh, political topics. So thanks for all your support out there. And we see you next time on Energy Explained. Good night.